Hey, um, I finished up uh, our series through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John uh, earlier this month and uh, have kind of been pondering where to go from here. Uh, being that I fill in once in a while, I, I generally am looking for a short book of the Bible so that you guys maybe have a chance of remembering something from the time before uh, rather than something that's 15 or 20 chapters long. So the Lord kind of laid in my heart a little while ago, minor prophets. I thought, oh, that's interesting. I really don't know much about minor prophets, and probably most of us don't. Uh, so in the last few weeks, I've been reading through the minor prophets, and as I came through Habakkuk, it just jumped out at me. So I felt that the Lord was leading us to go to the book of Habakkuk. Uh, maybe not the most familiar book in our Bibles, but it's actually a great, uh, great little book. Uh, if you're looking for it in your Bible, it is near the end of your Old Testament. It's about like there. Uh, it's, if you're paging through, it's like Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Malachi, and then you're into the New Testament. If you happen to have one of the pew Bibles, I actually found the page number for you. It's 667. So the prophet Habakkuk, he, he prophesied somewhere likely around the time of uh, 610 BC. So just give you a little bit of a ballpark uh, of time frame. So let's just pray as we get into God's word here. Lord, I, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you that it's living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Lord, I thank you that you have a purpose set out for it, God. Uh, I thank you that uh, you have given us uh, your spirit so we can understand and discern things of you, Lord. We ask that you would be with us this morning, Lord. Uh, I was reminded by the, the rain last night how you water the earth, Lord, and how your spirit waters our souls, Lord. I I woke up this morning to the song, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come flood this place and fill the atmosphere, Lord God. And, uh, I came out and heard the, the waves crashing against the shore, Lord. And I, I thank you that, that you, are, you are our water. You are our breath. And Lord, I pray that you would reveal yourself uh, in your word to us this morning, Lord. I pray that, uh, yeah, that you would show yourself powerful. Amen. So we're going to go through uh, chapter 1 and a few verses of chapter 2 this morning. We'll, we'll probably break Habakkuk up into two. Uh, starting off in verse 1, it says, The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. So very simply, we identify our, our, our prophet or the writer who, pen, who wrote this down very clearly as the prophet Habakkuk. Uh, he calls himself a prophet, quite simply. The oracle, it's an, that idea of an utterance, that he's... Uh, it's a prophesying impending calamity. There's a burden against it. And we'll see that, that this little book, it, it functions, this little prophecy functions a little differently than most of the prophets. You know, most of us are used to, when we open a prophet, prophecy book, that it starts off something along the lines of, the word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, Joel, Hosea, whomever, Isaiah. And here we start out with a completely different thrust. We'll see that there's like a question and answer and, and this responding thing that goes on in the book of Habakkuk. Verse 2, he says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? It sounds very reminiscent. You might recognize similar words from the psalmist in Psalm 13. He says, how, how long, O Lord, will you, f will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day? 
How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? It's actually, it's a cry. Habakkuk starts out as a cry of a godly man who wants to see God's righteousness in action around him, both physically in the nation and spiritually in the Jewish people. You know, he was likely uh, uh, of the Levite clan, maybe a, tr- maybe a priest. As we get to the end, the last, it's like a benediction almost. It's like a song at the end of chapter 3. And it gives evidence that he was some sort of musician. It says it's written for the stringed instruments. He was likely a Levite, part of the, mu- part of the, the, the guys providing the music as part of worship to the Lord in the temple. But he narrows his complaint. So he's saying, how long do I have to wait? Violence, will you not save? He narrows his complaint as we get to verse three. He says, why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. So justice goes forth perverted. You know, Habakkuk was living in difficult and dangerous times to be a prophet of the Lord. His complaint is regarding the nation of Judah. Their hearts have moved a long ways away from the Lord. If you were to flip, and it might be a f- kind of a fun read as a parallel uh, in your quiet times, if you were to flip to Second Chronicles and read through some of the accounts of the kings and the nations leading up to this time, it's interesting. If we go to goes back up to 2 Chronicles 29, we see the be- uh, a pattern that begins. We see good king, bad king, bad king, good king, okay king, bad king, right? So we go to Hezekiah. And we know Hezekiah as one of these great kings. Generally, he, he's, he's regarded as one of the, the greater ones. There's a great example. He came in, he, he, he reestablished temple worship. It says that he had the doors of the temple repaired. I think of these doors that have been closed and the hinges are rusty and he's had them freed up and repaired. He restored the priesthood. He had them come in, consecrate the place, clean it out. Consecrate the articles for, for worship. Consecrate themselves as priests. He even reached out to the other tribes of Israel. You'll, you'll remember that, that Israel was a split kingdom. The, the kingdom of Israel and Judah were split. And as the king of Judah, he extended out an invitation for all to come back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Worship is reestablished. He goes through the nation and he cuts down the, the Asherah poles, destroys the bales, tears down the high places. He's doing really well. He's serving the Lord. Jerusalem is spared from the hand of the Assyrian army. A little while later, Hezekiah falls ill. And the Lord even points out to him that it's the Lord that heals him. And Hezekiah makes a big mistake. He allows pride to well up in his heart and doesn't acknowledge where his healing has come from. Shortly thereafter, he shows the riches of the kingdom to the envoy from the budding nation of Babylon. Very interesting. We'll come back to that later. After him, his son Manasseh. Manasseh was a bad king. Second Chronicles 33, three through nine, he says he rebuilt the places, rebuilt the high places that his father had broken down. He erected altars to Baal, made Asherah poles, worshiped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, which the Lord said, in Jerusalem shall be my name forever. He carved images of idols and he set them in the house of God. 
Manasseh led, led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. I find that astounding. If I think of when, when Joshua led the people into the promised land and they were to, to clean house, because the, they were so wicked, they were to completely clean house because of the pagan idolatrous worship and, and all the sacrifice that was going on and all that stuff. But he says here that the people of Israel became worse than the Canaanites were under the leadership of Manasseh. After Manasseh came Ammon, his son, he was ungodly, only two years on the throne. He was so evil that the people impeached him and put his eight-year-old son on the throne. You know, I don't know about you, but I think I'd be, I don't know, embarrassed or I don't know what you call it if they're going to put my eight-year-old son on the throne because I'm so un unable to rule and so evil. But Josiah, Josiah was the eight-year-old son. And you might remember a little bit about Josiah. Josiah was an awesome king. Josiah was raised by his godly grandmother. As a teen, he sought the Lord. As a young man, I believe probably when he actually started to gain control of his kingdom, because as an eight-year-old boy, it would have been the, the, the guys around him that would have actually been doing the work of governing. And as he came of age, he would have started to take on that role. As a young man, he went through and he cleared the land of all that idolatry again. Took down the high places. You know, the nation had wandered so far that there was not a copy of the law of God around. He had, Josiah had the priests going through the temple and they were cleaning out the back rooms and they found a copy of the scriptures. And Josiah had them read and he wept and he mourned because of the condition of the people, how far they had moved from serving the Lord. In fact, because of Josiah serving the Lord faithfully, destruction did not come to the nation of Judah while he was on the throne. But because of the sins, while Manasseh and the bad guys were, there was still impending judgment coming. After Josiah, the nation continued to nosedive. We see jo Jehoahaz, he was on the throne for three months. And then Egypt conquered him. Then Eliakim, who became name changed to Jeho Jehoiakim. And he did evil and reigned for 11 years. I think that when we look at Habakkuk, he probably was serving in the temple in the days that Josiah was on the throne. He probably saw people's hearts, at least the kings and some of the people's hearts, turn back to God as his was. And now he's living in the time likely of... <coughs> Jehoiakim, sorry, I'm probably getting these names not quite right. But there is this, the nation has completely turned. And look what's happened and how he describes the state of the nation. Destruction and violence. People have turned away from God. Strife and contention. The law has been paralyzed. You know, if we were to go back to the Mosaic law, we'd see all these laws about serving God. And we'd also see all these laws about social justice. God cared about how people were treated. But here, justice has been perverted. The law has become powerless because of ungodly people who are attempting to uphold it or their idea of the law. He describes it as the wicked surround the righteous and camped around. 
So justice goes forth perverted. It's interesting as, as a people, as a nation, maybe even for us as we move away, I think J. Vernon McGee stated it well about what happened to the people of Judah. He said the people of Judah apparently felt that they were God's little pets and that he would not punish them for their sins. Probably the first time they did something they were apprehensive, wondering if God would punish them. When he seemingly did nothing, they assumed, there's the problem, they assumed that he didn't notice or that he didn't care. So as we see, God does care, and we'll see it throughout this little prophecy. The result is, is that we have a very frustrated prophet. He's saying, I cry out to you, Lord. Look how unjust it is. It seems that you're not hearing me. It seems like, you're, it seems like I'm just coming before you vainly. How long shall I cry? How long do you look idly? How do you make me see such iniquity? I don't know about you guys, but I can doesn't take much to draw a parallel line between what's going on in the nation of Judah and what's going on in our society today. Do we not call wrong right and right wrong? I look at those little bottles there and uh, I think about what's going on with the abortions in our land. You know what made the news last week? That a panda bear died in the zoo. Never mind the fact that Planned Parenting in the States murders more kids than anything and sells the bodies. We call right wrong and wrong right. Our society is broken. Our society is in so much iniquity. And how long shall we cry? Habakkuk carried this burden of the sin of his nation. Sometimes you and I carry the sin of our nation on our shoulders. And it's a burden. How come we have to see it? How come it's going on? Is God in control? Does he know what's going on? Jesus says to come and bring your burdens to him. Matthew 11, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my, yoke upon me, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. And my yoke is easy, my burden is light. In regards to seeing so much evil around, you know, Spurgeon had a great little insight on it. He said, ah, my brethren, we need to know the evil of men to make us move to earnesty in seeking their salvation. For if there be anything that the church be lacking more, then it is the matter of earnestness. It should drive us to seek the salvation of our land. But God is not idle, as we see here. We come into God's response to the complaint that Habakkuk brought before him. Starting in verse 5, God says, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth and sees dwellings not their own. Look among the nations. Wonder and see. Be astounded. 
God's clear in his response. He's doing a work that maybe we can't perceive. He is at work. We, we understand, we don't understand why these rulers are raised up, but God does. He has a plan. He's working in the background. Isaiah 55, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as heaven are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your thoughts, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. It's interesting, the idea of being wondered and astounded at God's work, Paul actually applies it to the gospel. In Acts chapter 13, he's preaching uh, in the synagogue in Pisidia. And he's proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that be Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law. Beware, lest what is said in the prophets should come about you. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days. Not to miss the astounding and wonderful work that God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. An unbelievable sacrifice. An unfathomable answer to prophecy. An unbelievable free gift that's hard to grasp and understand. In the context of Habakkuk, the astounding, wonderful, unbelievable work is a bitter and hasty nation called the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans would be Babylon. God used the, the Chaldeans' desire to dominate the earth as part of his judgment on his people for straying so far. And you might remember, here it says, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Remember what Hezekiah showed the Babylonians? He showed them the wealth of the nation. The Lord was working long before through he allowed some sinful desires to perpetuate his plan. The Chaldeans or the Babylonians were probably the first and the greatest world power. You might remember in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream is explained and it's, it's this, this figure that starts with a head of gold and then it goes through diminishing commodities in different strengths and ends up in, in, uh, in clay and iron mixed toes and signifying different nations that would rise up and rule the earth. And the most powerful one was the head made of gold. That was the Babylonian nation. That's who God raised up. Look how they're described. That bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. The Chaldeans, they spread out over the world, dominating and conquering as they went. Wherever they went, they dominated and conquered. They are dreaded and fearsome in verse 7. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They, they have their own idea of justice. They have, they have made themselves the authority and therefore are feared and dreaded. It says their horses, in verse 8, are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. He's describing a fierce and powerful cavalry. Comes in fast, nearly unstoppable. Able to travel vast distances quickly. Like a pack of wolves. I've never really seen a pack of wolves. But I've heard them howling at night. And just that's enough to send shivers up your, up your spine. 
I've heard of people who have been followed on horses by a pack of wolves. Scary. Very scary. I've seen images on TV of a pack of wolves attacking, you know, an elk or something like that. Powerful. Dangerous. That's the description that Habakkuk uses of the Calvary. They come for violence. Their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. They're always looking forward onto the next conquest. The Babylonians had a policy where they would displace and move around their conquered subjects. They'd resettle them and discourage them, assimilate them. Verse 9, they all come, or verse 10, at kings they scoff, at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep up like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Describes the military and political might as Babylon came along. Vast successes. The strongest fortresses would fall. They'd come, oh, big fortress, no problem. We have enough resources. We're going to build a ramp and go right on in. Has anyone seen pictures of Masada or been to Masada? It's a great illustration of this. You know, 2,000 years later, the siege ramp is still there. Masada is like an island in the desert. It's super, super high. I don't know the height. It's like, you know, the Dead Sea, I believe, is below sea level, and you're way above sea level when you're on Masada. And you look around, and you can actually still see where the Romans had their camps and their fences built. And there's this, off the backside, there's this huge siege ramp. Building a siege ramp was the only way to take a secure fortress, especially if it was a fortress that had water and food. That's what these guys did. They had an unending hunger for conquest. They were proud and they worshipped themselves and their own conquests. In Daniel chapter 4, you might recall what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace in Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Worshipping himself. So we can see why Habakkuk's confused and disappointed. I mean, first it seems that God's not responding to the wickedness in my own nation. And then he sends the Chaldeans. It's like a big, great big bombshell being dropped. It's, in a way, it's like, no, no, not the, or it's like he starts off, okay. God, my people are so sinful. You gotta do something. How come you're not doing something? And then God says, I'm bringing the Chaldeans. No, not the Chaldeans. It's, He's a huge, big question. How come you're using someone more unrighteous than us? And here's Habakkuk's second answer where he's going to lay out some of his un- mis- un- unable to understand what God's doing. You are, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Verse 12. We shall not die, O Lord, for you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up man more righteous than he? You made mankind like the flesh of the sea, like crawling things that have no rulers. He brings them up with a hook and drags them out with his net. He gathers them with his dragnet and is rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? He starts this discourse off with a rhetorical question. He says, he already knows the answer. Oh, Lord, you're from everlasting to everlasting. You're my Lord. You're my God. 
He understands, he has good doctrine actually. He understands who God is. He understands that God is from everlasting to everlasting, creator, sustainer. He still trusts in God. He says, my God, my holy one. He also understands that God has promised that he's never going to fully wipe out his people. There may be some judgment for sin, but he's never going to wipe out his people. He's going to fulfill his promises. We shall, <coughs> we shall not die, he says. So he declares these things about the Lord, and then he says, You who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up man more righteous than he? He says, Why the Chaldeans, God, you are a holy God. Why these guys? I actually like how the NASB says that verse. It says, You cannot, speaking of God, you cannot look on wickedness with favor. So the big question is, why a nation more unrighteous than, than Israel, more in sin, or rather, Judah rather? You know, in a way, I don't know exactly, but the reality is there is no levels of righteousness. Romans tells us that no one is righteous, no, not one. Therefore, none of us on our own are worthy to come before God on our own. Therefore, whether it's the Chaldeans that look really fierce or the unrighteous people of Judah, it's irrelevant. Because without Jesus Christ making us righteous, we're in our sin and in our depravity. So why, God, why the Chaldeans, your holy God? And they're not righteous and neither is the sinning nation of Judah. His second complaint is you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. It's like, why? The Chaldeans, our people have no chance. They're like a school of fish swimming around in this great big dragnet. No chance. He says he brings them up with the hooks, and he drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet's net, so he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. He says, why the Chaldeans? They worship themselves. It's an interesting picture, you know. They, they bait. Think of fishermen. You, you're, going, you're going for a fish, and you hook in a bait. You're going to try to get them. I think the Chaldeans probably would try and bait politically leaders. That didn't work. They're going to come along with their net, and they're going to clean house. Those fortresses, those strongholds, take them out so they've turned to worshiping their hands and worshiping the work of their hands is it not interesting that Jesus calls us fishers of men and Babylon is described here with nets look at the contrast Babylon they fish for men in a way to destroy in Jesus we're to be fishers of men to bring hope Babylon surrounds, the work of men surrounds and controls. Jesus brings freedom. Babylon's nets bring tyranny and oppression. Jesus washes us in his grace and his blood. The worship of oneself and there's your own nets of, the, of Babylon encourages idolatry. Worship of our stuff. Jesus is worthy of our worship. 
The nets of, the, of Babylon encourages us to elevate the work of our hands as it's us, it's our stuff. And what does Jesus say? Recognize provisions as what they are, his provisions for our lives today. They're his. The work of our hands is Jesus. Babylon destroys, Jesus creates. The work of Babylon taxes the people and lays heavy burdens on them where Jesus provides for us and lifts our heavy burdens as we read in Matthew. This is what Jeremiah said about worship. Cursed is the man who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an inhabited salt land. But... This is what he says about those who worship the Lord. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out roots by the stream, does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. Worshiping stuff is like tumbleweed. You guys have been around Kamloops, right? That's the only place I know of where there's that region where there's tumbleweed. And maybe it grows a little bit and it gets hot and dry and what happens? The wind comes up and it rolls down the hill and lands in the ditch in the gutter of the road to catch fire or be thrown away. Whereas a tree by, by the waters grows in strength and bears fruit. You know what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? If we carry on in Daniel chapter 4, start where we were again. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of his royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I built with my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of majesty? While the words were still on the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O king Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. You shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like the oxen. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled, and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from among men. He ate grass like an oxen. His body was wet with the dew. No shelter. Till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. This mighty man, this ruler of the greatest, strongest nation in the world, on his hands and knees eating grass and his fingernails becoming like the claws to scrape up the dirt, maybe eat some worms, I don't know. He lost his mind there's probably a diagnosis for it in our modern language, but the, in our modern medical world, but the reality is he lost his mind because he worshipped himself, and the Lord took him down. That's what happens when we worship our stuff and when we worship ourselves. He finally asks, at the end of verse 17, he says, how long is this going to go on? Is he going to just keep on going over the world and take out nation after nation after nation? Just ask that question. Lord, how long? How long? Then Habakkuk changes gears. So far, it's been fear. 
So far, it's been worrying. In chapter 2, he moves to watching and waiting on the Lord. Eventually, when we get to chapter 3, we'll see that he moves to worshiping the Lord. Here's what he says. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning his complaint. So Habakkuk's laid his case before the Lord. He said, Lord, I don't get it. I don't know why you haven't acted my people. Why the Chaldeans, they aren't holy. My pe- our people are helpless. They worship themselves. And now he has to wait. It's very interesting. It says that he goes to the watch post. If we were to, to, to go to an old uh, city or whatever, you know, you get the wall around the city and you have the post, the, the watchman's towers. And their job was to stand there and scour the horizon or the tree line, whatever was the nearest thing, and warn the people in the city of any imminent danger. It's like the guy in the crow's nest on a ship looking for icebergs. It's a, it's a spot of very important. It's very serious. It can be very boring, but you must always have an element of expectation. So he's, he's there stationed himself on the tower looking out. He's looking to see what the Lord will say. He's coming with eager expectation that the Lord has a word for him, an answer. It might even be lonely. He says, I will take my place. He didn't say we, me and my buddy. He said, I will take the place. And it's a place of patience, waiting and watching. I was reading one commentator this week, and I kind of got kicked in the pants on this. He said, what's our attitude when we come to God's word? He said, do we take our Bibles and slouch in our chairs, in our easy chair, and put our feet up, and come to the Bible kind of lazy? Or do we come to God's word expecting God to show up? Do we come with paper and pen, alert, ready, patient, to seek his word? Ask the Lord through his Holy Spirit to reveal it to us. Am I lazy in my approach to God's word? Or am I a watchman in regards to God's word? Not only that, he understood that God was going to have some rebuke of him. He understood he didn't get what was going on. I actually like how the NASB says the the end of, uh, I don't even know what verse it is, verse one. And and instead of saying, and what I will (coughs) answer concerning my complaint and how I may reply when I am reproved or corrected. Habakkuk had an element of humility. He understood that he didn't get it all, but that God was going to show him something. He had a soft and humble heart ready to be worked on. The Lord answered him, and he said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. Verse 2 and verse 3, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The Lord answers those who diligently seek him. When we come with humble hearts, he comes with an answer. We need to assume that position of a watchman. His primary way of revealing is through his word. And we spend time with him. So the spirit reveals it to us. He, Habakkuk is instructed to record this vision. It's important and it's to be recorded. And it's to be recorded plainly and permanently. He's told, put it on tablets. I, I want this, I want people to know what 
is going on. I want it to be shared. And it's plainly and permanently on the tablets. It's interesting, we have this weird line in here. It says, so he may run who reads it. And it's interesting, every commentator you read has a little different take on it. But they're all pretty good. And they're all applicable. I like to think of it as no fine print. Pl- the message should be plain enough, one, one would say, that the runner who's running the message can read it and understand it as he's delivering the message. The other, the other interpretation is that as someone runs by, they can see the message and it's large enough and plain enough that they can get it. But the third application that I really like, understanding of this little bit, is it'll be plain enough for people to take it and run with it. To run with God's word. And he says that the vision will come. It's trustworthy. It might seem like it's taking a long time, but God's word is faithful. He will always complete what he has promised as he has always done in prophecy. In Habakkuk's time, it was only like 20 to 30 years and this came to fruition and Jerusalem was taken by the Chaldeans. So God does not delay. He's swift in what he says he's gonna do. Then we get to verse four. Verse four is where we're gonna end today. But it's also the most important verse in in this little book. It's a super important verse actually in our whole Bible says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. It's a, it's a great contrast between a puffed up soul, someone prideful, and someone living by faith. You guys might remember our study in 3 John. There was a few different characters. We had uh, Diotrephes, who was prideful. And we had Gaius and Demetrius who were humble servants of God. I kind of see the same correlation here. And if he first talks about a puffed up soul, a puffed up soul is, it's pride of life, as it says in 1 John. Do not love the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of eyes and the pride of the life is not from the Father, but is from the world. It's the pride of control and authority. You might remember in Romans chapter 9, Paul describes a potter in the clay. It's like puffed up soul would be like the clay talking to the potter and saying, I don't want to be a cup. I want to be a bowl. I don't want to be a bowl. I want to be a vase. It really is a rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the idea of saying, I'm too great to consider it. I'm too wise to believe it. I'm too good to need it. I'm too advanced to consider it. And the result is that a soul that's off kilter. I like the idea of not upright. I'm a practical guy. I think of building something and getting the level out to make sure it's straight. This stand is fairly straight. The idea is that the stand's like this and stuff slides off. It's out of kilter. No longer level. It's the idea of being drunk or sleeping, out of touch with reality, a puffed up soul. But the righteous will live by faith. You know, Habakkuk was looking forward in faith to Jesus Christ, just as we look back in faith to Jesus Christ. 
Remember how we were talking about how no one is righteous, not the Chaldeans, not the nation of Judah, not us on our own. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, he fell, did he not? Fall, yeah, fell. I was going to say falled. I guess I have a six-year-old daughter. But the rest of the story with Nebuchadnezzar is an incredible story. Because if we were to finish off where his nails were like bird's claws, in verse 33, verse 34, at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. No one can say to, can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought, Lord sought me, and I established my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Nebuchadnezzar, that proud man, that proud man who ended up eating grass like a donkey or an oxen, humbled himself before the Lord, put his faith in Jesus. And what does it say? The just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith is repeated a whole bunch of times in our Bible. We'll see it three more times, actually. It's interesting. You know, anytime something's repeated, it's worthy to be noted and worthy to be noted closely. You know, some of the hardest-hitting uh, books of the, our Bible repeat Habakkuk 2 verse 4. In Romans chapter 1 verse 17, the just shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11, the just shall live by faith. Hebrews 10.38, the just shall live by faith. In Romans, he talks about our justification and our salvation before God. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, Paul says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the salvation of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And in Galatians, he talks about the power of the Spirit to live today. That our works can't do it. That working under the law and living under the law doesn't work. He says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Our good works, our stuff, doesn't do it. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. But the one who does, not, who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, curses everyone who hung on a tree. Jesus hung on that cross and accepted our curse. Our sins, the weight of the world came upon him. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that it might come to all, 
so that we may receive the promised spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. The just shall live by faith, the ability to endure. In Hebrews 10, but the righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. It's faith in Jesus Christ. It's not about our works. It's not about our stuff. It's humbling ourselves before him like Nebuchadnezzar did. Saying, you are God, I'm not. You know, the Jews in the Talmud have a saying that the whole law was given at Mount Sinai. You might remember, you know, the 613 laws and all this stuff. David in Psalm 15 boiled them down to 11. Isaiah brought them down to 6. Micah to 3. Isaiah again down to 2. And Habakkuk to this one. The just shall live by faith. You know, this little verse, the just shall live by faith, we probably know the story of Martin Luther reasonably well. Martin Luther tried in his flesh very, very hard to please God. And this is what it says. Before this bold declaration of truth of the gospel, Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk. As a monk, he went on a pilgrimage to Rome, and as he crossed the Alps, he fell deathly ill. As he lay sick, he felt great turmoil, both physical and spiritual. And the verse that had previously touched him came to mind. The just will live by faith, from Habakkuk 2.4. When Luther, when Luther recovered, he went on to Rome and did the tourist things that pilgrims did. One day he came to the church of St. John's, where there was a staircase said to be from Pilate's Judgment Hall. It was a custom of pilgrims to climb this staircase, but never on their feet. They painfully climbed a step at a time on their knees, saying prayers and kissing the steps. As he did this, Luther remembered the words of Habakkuk. The just while lived by his faith. And it is said that when he remembered this, he stopped. He stood up, walked down, and went straight home to Germany. Some say the Reformation began on those stairs. This is what Luther himself said. Before those words broke into my mind, I hated God and I was angry with him. Because not content with frightening us sinners by the law and by the miseries of life, he still further increased our torture by the gospel. Wow. But when the Spirit of God, but when by the Spirit of God I understood these words, the just shall live by faith, the just shall live by faith, then I felt born again like a new man, he says. I entered through the open doors into that very paradise of God. I don't know where you're at today. I don't know what you believe. I don't know what trials and tribulations you're going through. But I look at this one in a little bit chapters of this prophecy. You know, I can get all caught up and worried in the worries of the world. I need to trust that God has a plan and a purpose for what's going on in the world today. Doesn't mean that there's no spot for action, but I need to trust in his goodness and trust that he is in control. But more importantly than that, what have we done with Jesus? It's clear the just will live by faith. It's putting our faith in Jesus Christ. Faith means trusting. Have I trusted Jesus Christ? It says that when we put our faith in him, 
that we're washed new, we're made new, our sins are forgiven, we're washed in the blood of Jesus Christ, as crazy as that sounds, we're made clean, our sins are forgiven. I love how John described, actually, he talked in the opening of 2 John, he's talked about the grace and the mercy and the peace of God. God the Father has given us grace through the mercy applied of Jesus' blood through the Son of Jesus Christ and will give us his Holy Spirit to give us peace and hope in this life to come. We're not to be fearful. Trust in the Lord with our, all our lives. I want to just finish with the little benediction that Habakkuk gives, the song at the end of chapter 3. As this man moves from worry and misunderstanding to watching and waiting on the Lord to becoming a worshiper, he says, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the uh, the fields yield no food, the flock will be cut off from the folds, there will be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. That's what God does for us when we put our faith and our trust in His Son, Jesus Christ. We can lift our eyes from the troubles of this world and fix our eyes to our heavenly home and eternity to come. Amen? Worship guys, if you guys want to come on. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word today, Lord. We pray that uh, you would just work in our hearts, Lord. Uh, I pray that we would have humble hearts before you, Lord, that we wouldn't be worriers, Lord, but that we would become those who watch for you, those who wait for you, and those who worship you.